a couple of announcements, and I'm going to try and move pretty quick here, but just by way of reminder, we have cross-cultural training this, uh, this Saturday from 9 to 3. There will be childcare. There will be food. You can come hungry in the morning, and we'll have coffee to wake you up. We'll feed you lunch as well. So uh, I really, really encourage the time. Uh, the people we're bringing in are fantastic. My daughter, when she was here last week, she found out they were coming. She's like, Mike's coming? Is Enrique coming? And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, I'm coming home, Dad. So my daughter's coming home from college next weekend to be with us just so that she can take part in that. And so if you haven't signed up, please do. And I would, add, I would highly, highly encourage you to come uh, join us for uh, that time. Also, you'll notice on the back of your sermon notes today is some uh, information about uh, us, one of our missionaries. We're going to change the way we pray for our missionaries a little bit. And rather than me praying for a different missionary each week, we're going to pray for a missionary each month. And, and then that gives me a little more opportunity to pray more specific and targeted prayers for them, but you as well. So you can take those home, put them up in your house, and be praying for our missionaries as we support them, not only with, with money, but with our prayers. And I would bet that if you asked them if they would rather have our money or our prayers, they would say our prayers. Because they're fully aware that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and can provide for them any way, but we should definitely be praying for them. While we're talking about prayer, there is going to be a change to the way we do our, what was previously called corporate prayer, but corporate just means body, but it sounds to most of us today like a, a business word. And so um, we're, we're changing the name to gathered prayer, but we're going to move the day of the month that, that it is on. Normally it was on the third Sunday of the month, which would be today, but there's not going to be, or maybe that was last, no, that would be today. But we're, we're just going to not have prayer this week and reset. And so the first weekend of May will be our uh, first or, or gathered prayer on the new schedule. And we're going to move to the first Sunday of the month for that because uh, there is a church here in town uh, that we've had the opportunity to bless by allowing them to gather on the afternoons uh, uh, here on the third Sunday of the month. And so um, we're going to have to to move our plans to accommodate them, and, and I think uh, I'm happy to do so. And I'm kind of excited about the way it's going to work because uh, that first Sunday of the month will be um, just really a wonderful time where we get to celebrate communion as the family of God and then uh, gather for prayer and a meal together. And uh, what a picture that Sunday in and of itself will be uh, of, of what we see in, in Acts 2. And so there, there is that change. Um, on a, a little bit more of a serious note, and I want to be very, very careful how I talk about this because um, I think it would be easy uh, to take what I'm about to say uh, as something other than it is. It's, it's not a criticism, but I, I have a, a bit, just a business matter that we want to talk about. And, that, and, you know, the elders have been talking a lot, uh, continuing even since the beginning of this year when we talked, kind of unveiled our new vision and values, and that they really don't represent a big change to who we are. Uh, as a church, we are taking steps together to love God and make him known. And there's, there's the admission in there that we're all in process and we all have steps to take, that God has not only called but commanded us to take those steps together, 
that we're to love him with our whole heart and mind and soul and strength, but then also to go out in the world and, and to make him known. And then our values that shape the ministries we do inside this wall, these walls is, if you remember, they're the Bible. That is, we teach from God's word because it's God's word and God's spirit that are his power to change lives. Uh, the gospel, we, we clarify the gospel, we're clear on the gospel, we speak the truth of the gospel and don't assume it. Relationships is how God has designed us to grow. Dependence, that is we depend upon each other uh, as we gather as a church, whether that be as a whole church or in our, our groups, but also dependence upon God in prayer. Uh, unity, that is a, we are a unified church, uh, even though we're two languages in one church and we have multiple services, we want to be a people that are unified uh, peaceably before God. And now I've forgetting, forgotten which ones I've said, but I'm missing one, I know. Um, but, but these are the values that shape who we are as a church. What this doesn't tell us is what we're going to do as a church. And the elders are getting closer and closer to kind of saying, okay, we've got a plan. And, and I, I got to tell you, we've been trying to some of the language we've been using is we, we've been trying to put together a God-sized dream, like uh, big dreams that only God can fulfill, and, and we've got some, and we're, we're closing in on talking about how we as a church are going to make a difference in the world we live in, and the world we live in needs the gospel, Right? And so we're, we're, gonna, uh, we're, we're getting ready to, to unleash that. But one of the things we want to give attention to is, is our next steps in here as well. And uh, for those uh, few of you who participated in the, the survey that we did a few uh, weeks ago or maybe a couple months ago now, one of the things that we really saw in there was that one of the felt needs we have uh, as a church is to grow um, our, our music and worship ministry. And, and this is no slight on Madeline. She's done an incredible job uh, in the interim. And I am so grateful uh, to God for, for what's happened because my prayer throughout this whole time has been that people would step up to serve and lead. And that's been growing and happening. And, and I wouldn't change that for the world. But um, the elders would really like to propose a budget uh, this coming year that, uh, that would allow us to hire a full-time uh, worship director. We think that's one of our next great steps uh, as a church. But as of today, we're $48,000 under budget. And, and the budget we're looking at presenting uh, has cut from every possible place we can cut money. And it's a Band-Aid budget. It's a budget that gets us by for a year, but that isn't sustainable. So what does this have to do with us? Well, um, this is not a criticism for what's been given uh, at all. But one of the things we need to, to see is, can we as a church sustain a budget like what we already have, dollar-wise? And so um, the next kind of couple of months is going to be a bit of a litmus test um, to see, can we present a budget that, uh, that's a stretch for us? Because um, unfortunately, it, it does represent an increase in the percentage of our budget that goes to salaries, which over time we would like to decrease, 
not increase. And, and so that's kind of some of the Band-Aid part of it. But, but if, as a church, if, if we're all giving sacrificially, and generally I think probably everybody's sitting in here, and if you're a guest, this doesn't pertain to you, but everybody sitting in here falls into one of four categories. Either you don't give, and we should talk because that's com- a commanded part of our worship. Uh, it's not the amount that we give that's as important as stewarding all of what God has given us because he owns all of it. And so maybe there's some of us who don't give that need to start. Maybe there's some who give occasionally who, who need to maybe consider giving regularly. And then maybe there's some of us who give regularly but not sacrificially. And that's really what God asks of us, to give not just to his church but to, to people we come in contact with in the world who have needs and missionaries abroad, to, to give sacrificially as he gave to us sacrificially. And so if every member of Trinity is giving sacrificially and, and this is the budget we've got, that's awesome. We can work with that. And, and we'll move on and figure out what God has for us. But if we can see this budget year end closer to what what the projected budget for this year has been, then we know we might be able to take a greater risk uh, next year in taking some next steps to hopefully grow, not only in our worship, but in all, also in our outreach. Because the truth of the matter is, right, wrong, or otherwise, most people uh, decide their church based upon the music. Now, that would be Christians looking for a church, and, and we want to step into the gap and help, uh, help people find a church that is able to worship passionately and preaches the word faithfully. And sometimes those two things seem to not go hand in hand very well. And we want to step into that, into that gap. But also, I think we should not underestimate the power of our worship as a tool for outreach. Because when people who don't know Jesus come in here and hear what we heard this morning, it's powerful. And it's not what happened up here that made uh, this morning powerful, though we were led well. It's the church. And sometimes I think we, we get in this mindset that the performers are on stage and the audience is in the seats and we're singing to God. But I think biblically what we find is that the leaders are on stage, the performers are in the chairs, and the audience is the Lord. And we want to sing to him as well and as best as we can. So without any criticism, what the elders and I are asking is, can we see our budget come in closer to what we've projected, more like 100% than 92% for two reasons. One, so we can hire a worship director who's full-time to serve us. And if you don't think that requires somebody who's full-time, come talk to me. I'd be happy to show you why that's a blessing to the church and how much time the job actually takes. Uh, And number two uh, is to... Uh, to prepare ourselves for some big, God-sized dreams to take the gospel out here into the, to the valley, into Walla Walla, and, and see God's kingdom grow. So that's the ask. Uh, if you are, if those sound good to you, and you are able, would you help us round out this budget year in a spot where we can, uh, where we can dream some of these 
dreams and see if that's where God is leading us. Uh, With that, let's turn our attention to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the church. We thank you that you have gathered us here together and that we get to experience this uh, small bit of heaven here on earth. We thank you that, that we get to hear your word read. We get to pray together. We get to sing together. We get to give. We get to preach. And all of these are means of worship as we uh, fellowship together and worship you through that as well. We just thank you for the blessing of your church. And I, Lord, I want it this morning to thank you for the blessing you have given to me of allowing me to be part of this church and to love and to serve and to lead these, uh, these people. Father, would you give us wisdom, each of us, as to uh, how we can and should give to the work of the ministry? And Lord, would you, uh, through all of that, show us where you're leading us as a church? Are you asking us to take a big risk this year and, and hire somebody full-time and uh, and, and grow not only our budget, but, but maybe the, the ability we have to minister and reach out. But would you also give us wisdom as we hone in closer and closer to a plan for reaching out with the valley, to the valley with the gospel, for, for caring for people, for meeting the needs of people where they are. Lord, give us great wisdom and discernment in what you would have us to do in this time. Lord, we want to continue this morning to pray for Bob and Teresa Reister. We we praise you for the good fellowship that they had at this year's uh, annual retreat uh, for Christar. And Lord, I'm I'm sure that must be a sweet time for them as they live uh, in a land that is foreign to theirs and away from their family. And I'm sure the opportunity to gather with other believers and to, uh, to, to, to get encouragement and strength and rest is certainly a blessing to them, and we thank you that they have reported to us what a blessing that is. Lord, as they have asked us to pray for a reduction in COVID cases so that uh, restrictions can ease in Japan and they might be able to reach out uh, more and more in the ways that they have planned and that you have uh, led them to, to, to spread the gospel, Lord, we just pray that they might be able to, uh, to, to, uh, um, to get out more and spend more time with people and and, and connecting with people for the sake of sharing the gospel. Lord, I thank you that that is their prayer, and I ask you that you would give us a heart like that. That You would give us a heart that, that desires to, uh, to see restrictions ease. And Lord, I must confess personally that, that my desire to see uh, restrictions ease probably had to do more with my own de- selfish desires than the spread of the gospel. So Lord, would you give us hearts like that that, that don't think of ourselves and our wants and our desires first, but think how we might tell people of what you have done for us and the great grace there is in Christ. Lord, I want to pray this morning for, uh, for Tina and her foot, well, actually both of her feet as she goes through physical therapy, and, and as doctors are continuing tests to find out what's going on there, Lord, I pray that you would give the doctors clarity and that there might be simple and effective uh, fixes both for her feet and for the pain that she's dealing with in her back. Lord, we pray also this morning uh, for Sarah Johnson, and we pray for the exciting news of this uh, clinical trial that she's going to be able to be a part of that may have a great help and effect on, on her health. Lord, um, how, how that plays out and which group she'll be in in this trial will, uh, will determine how many times a month 
she has to go to Seattle. And Lord, there's a, uh, there's a way that she wants that to go. And Lord, if that way is good for her and she has to take less trips to Seattle, we would ask for that. But Lord, ultimately what I would ask is that you would providentially guide her circumstances so that whatever goes on, and we know that what goes on is not random, but that you are sovereignly in control. But Lord, in this test and trial of this new medication, I pray that you would, would work it out for her good, that, that it might bring health and help and healing to her, especially as she deals with all of these uh, respiratory difficulties that she's gone through for so long and the continued struggle. Lord, we know that, um, that even just a common cold uh, can, can pose great danger to her health, and so we pray that you would keep her healthy. Lord, as we turn our attention to your word now and look at the book of Matthew, would you help us to understand your book, uh, this book and, and, and see you through it, maybe even especially today as we look at some of the, the technical details to, uh, to get the context of the book right. But, but as we go through this, this gospel, Lord, would you just glorify yourself? Would you show us the greatness of Christ and, and how he is our sovereign king? Lord, would you give us submissive hearts and lives, understanding that everything he asks and commands of us is for our good and for your glory and for our joy. And so would you just do much in us and for the spread of the gospel through the book of Matthew. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I am really excited to start this journey through the book of Matthew this week. And I've heard from a lot of people about how excited they are I don't know that I've ever got as much positive feedback uh, on a sermon series as having gone through the book of Daniel. Apparently, it was a, just a timely series, but I can tell you I've never heard more excitement about a sermon series than beginning the book of Matthew today. And so I'm excited as we're going to go through all 28 chapters. We're going to take a look at the whole thing. We're gonna, we've called this, as Madeline mentioned this morning, upside down, because uh, what we see in the book of Matthew is this kingdom, this kingdom of, of Christ that he's setting up here on earth, but that is an eternal kingdom, and how it's not like earthly kingdoms, and its subjects aren't to live in this kingdom in the way earthly subjects do, and that its king does not conduct himself the way that earthly kings do either, and so I'm really excited I remember when I was uh, growing up, this was probably sometime in the 80s, my aunt purchased this, um, this camera. It, it was called a Quadralens, and it was a 3D camera. It looked really strange. It had four lenses on the front of the camera, and as it took a picture, these four lenses would take four images that would then get combined into one, and what you ended up with was a 3D uh, photo. For those of you who are younger, this was back in the film days, and this was quite incredible uh, to see a 3D photo printed from your local one-hour Photoshop. These, these four images, each, I mean, the, there was prob they were probably only about four inches across for the whole thing, but the, the slightly different uh, perspective of each of these lenses gave additional detail to this image that provided depth and provided perspective, and then we got this 3D look at whatever the image uh, was. Well, I think this is a helpful analogy in understanding why there are four Gospels. 
Each of the four Gospels has the same focal point. Each is a picture and a snapshot of the same Savior, but from slightly different perspectives. And as we get these perspectives uh, and, and blend them in as we, re, as we read all three perspectives, we get a much richer, fuller, deeper understanding of who Jesus was and what he did. The, the change in perspective gives depth to the images and this, this uh, 3D picture of, of Jesus begins to emerge in a way that one gospel would not would not do. These four Gospels each have a different point to them. Uh, each one of the four presents to us Jesus as sovereign. It is the common theme through the four Gospels that Jesus is in absolute control. From his death to his arrests to his trial and everything in between, he is, not, uh, he, he is the sovereign God. And so Mark presents us with Jesus as the sovereign servant. We see him take very low positions. Mark's gospel is focused primarily on story, what Jesus did. And and Mark wants to draw us in to this rapidly unfolding story. If you read the gospel of Mark, you'll, you'll take note of how many times he says, and immediately, when we know that not the events were not immediate. Some of them had distance between him, them, but he says, and immediately, and, and it's just a, a literary tool to draw us in to this rapidly unfolding story that he wants us to be excited about. And then the Gospel of Mark ends abruptly, strangely, almost like there's supposed to be a continuation of that story, which is you as the continuation of that story. Luke being very different from Mark, presents us this very detailed, very technical account of the sovereign Savior. Luke presents us with with Jesus who, who didn't necessarily come to serve as the picture that Mark presents, but as the one who came to save. And there's special attention given in Luke to those who were rejected. I have in the margins of my Bible, as you go through the book of Luke, the word rejected written over and over in there as as, uh, he focuses on Jesus' interaction with the rejected of society. Gentiles and and women and lepers all take special place in the gospel of Luke. And this shouldn't surprise us because Luke is the only Gentile author in Scripture. And so his heart is drawn out to Jesus' compassion and affection for for those who in their day were the rejected of society. And he shows us that that for Jesus, there was no one who was rejected, no one who was out of the reach of his care and of his saving grace. And then there's the the Gospel of John, who uh, doesn't even take a chronological look at Jesus' life. He is much more theological in his ordering of things. There are uh, sevens on repeat. There are seven miracles presented to us uh, in, in the Gospel of John that Jesus does that show us that he is the sovereign God. John wants us to understand that, that this, this man who he writes of is no mere mortal, but that he is the God-man. And so there's these seven miracles. There's the seven I am statements. I am the door. I am the uh, living water. I am 
the bread of life. There's these uh, seven I am statements, and I have those written in large capital I am's. But there's also seven smaller I am's in the book of John, where he's asked, are you the Christ? Are you whoever? And he responds with, I am. And so we see this, this presentation to us in the gospel of John with Jesus being the great I am. And then there's Matthew, who presents to us Jesus as the sovereign king. Matthew is a very uh, Jewish book. Uh, Matthew, uh, well, we'll get to who Matthew is momentarily. Excuse me for one second. This most simple structure I can give you for the book of Matthew is in two parts. And in chapters 1 through 10, we see the presentation of the king. We are presented with Jesus as our king. And there's very, uh, very significant treatments to royalty. There are wise men who present royal gifts. In the opening chapters, we get his royal lineage. He has royal heralds who go out. It's a very royal and regal book as the king is presented to us. And then from chapters 11 through 28, we get the rejection of the king. But there is a more significant structure uh, than that in the book of Matthew. And I'm going to move along pretty quickly here. If you would like the, the structure of the book, I'd be happy to email it to you. So if you can't take notes fast enough, that's okay. The book of Matthew can actually be broken down into seven parts. The first three chapters, or four chapters, is, is the introduction to who Jesus is. We get his genealogy, his birth, his baptism, and his preparation for ministry. And that's the opening part of the book of Matthew. And then we move from there into five pretty obvious sections in the book of Matthew. And, and the reason they're obvious is because they unfold in a similar pattern. There is a, a teaching of Jesus, the first one being the Sermon on the Mount, maybe the most familiar teaching of Jesus, followed by events that Matthew records for us that illustrate Jesus' teaching. And so we, see, we hear from Jesus and he teaches us something, and then we see that unfold in the life and ministry of the disciples. And this, this happens five different times. In the first section, chapters 5 through 9, we get the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus introduces us to his kingdom, and that's followed by a bunch of healings. And this, this establishes Jesus' credibility. Um, it's, it would be easy for him to come and say, I'm the king, I'm bringing a kingdom, here's what my kingdom looks like. But, but what establishes that? Well, this is probably a much bigger conversation than we can have today. I would love to sit down and have this conversation anytime with anybody. But from Moses to Revelation, miracles in Scripture are always given to validate a messenger. They're never just given randomly. They're always given to those who speak on behalf of God. And, and we even can see this from the Old Testament because in John chapter 3, when Jesus shows up to Nicodemus, or when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, that is, by night, the teacher of Israel, probably the primary teacher in Israel at that time, he sneaks out, comes to Jesus at night, and he says to Jesus, teacher, we know that you are a man come from God because no one does the miracles you do or the things you do unless God sent him. 
So Nicodemus, in John chapter 3, has already got a theology that says miracles validate the messenger. And so Jesus gives us this message, and then he validates everything in these miracles that he performs in chapters 5 through 9. The next section, the second of these five sections, is the preparation of his disciples for ministry. And he is teaching them and instructing them, and then he sends them out to do the work of the ministry that he has called them to in chapters 10 through 12. The third of these five sections is where where, uh, this, this polarization begins to happen. And there are some who, who believe in Jesus. And there are some who reject him. And throughout chapters 13 through 16, 20, this polarization spreads. And those who reject him become more angry in their rejection. And those who receive him more fervent in their reception. And Jesus' teaching in this section is primarily uh, in, regard, or in, in the form of parables, stories used to illustrate a point. And the disciples at one point even ask him, why do you teach in parables? And he says, so seeing they may not see and hearing they may not hear. He's, he's teaching in such a way so that those who have, who have moved towards reception of him might understand what he says. And those who are rejecting him do not. And it increases this polarization. This is the section where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And this is kind of the hinge of the book, right here in chapters 13 through about 16 and a half, 16 verse 20. And the hinge is that Jesus is turning away from his public ministry and heading towards the cross. He begins to tell his disciples that he's going to die and be resurrected. He, he begins to prepare himself and his people for, for his departure. And so he's spent most of the opening chapters of Matthew teaching and instructing the general public. And as this polarization grows, he turns his attention to the cross. The fourth of these five sections is instructions to the church. It's the, uh, in fact, Matthew 18 is the first time that the word church occurs in the New Testament or in the teaching of Jesus. And so he begins to give instructions to the church and how Christians should live together. This section spans chapter 16, verse 21, through the end of chapter 18. And so there's this shift here from evangelism to discipleship. Jesus has had a public ministry, but now he's turning towards the cross, and he begins to focus his attention on preparing those whom he's going to leave behind once he dies. And so his ministry takes a much more discipleship-based approach as he begins to prepare these men who would be the founders of the church. And then lastly, the last of these five sections, in chapters 19 through 25, and I want to make note of this, chapters 19 through 25 represents the largest section of the book of Matthew. It is Jesus' teaching on future judgment. And this is really, really important in the book of Matthew. And he talks about judgment in a couple of different ways. For those who have not repented and trusted in him, for those who do not receive his teaching, it's a warning that judgment is coming and you will be held responsible and have to take an account for your sin. 
And for those who have received him, who have believed him, who understand who he is, it is also a warning. But it's not the same kind of warning. It's, it's not the kind of warning that says, uh, you sinned, now you have to ho- have, uh, give an account for your sin. It's the kind of warning that says, okay, church, I gave you grace so that you might be my witnesses to Judea, Samaria, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. What did you do with the grace that I gave you? And this is also really important in the book of Matthew because what it means is how we conduct ourselves in the church of God and how we represent his kingdom into the world when we leave, we will all stand before Jesus and give an account. I'm going to pause and let that sink in. Do you regularly share the gospel with the lost? Do you open your home and your life in a hospitable fashion so that those who don't know Jesus might meet him through you? Because they, those who won't come to church, they might come to your home. I was walking, um, I'm not going to use that example. No, I am going to use that example. I, I'm super hesitant to use myself in positive ways. Um, because I can't be the hero of a sermon in Jesus too. Jesus is always the hero of every sermon. But I went on a ride along this week with, some, with an officer in the church. It was awesome. It was really, really uh, a fun time. But um, as I was walking in, the purpose for this was I was asked if I would consider being on call as a chaplain to the police department. So when, the few times a year when something really, really bad happens and they need somebody to come out and help with family, if I would be willing to do that. And I've got experience in that. And I said, yeah, I would do that. And I'm walking into the police station for the purpose of going on this ride-along. And I, I'm hearing the question that I'm going to be asked, a question that I greatly appreciate it, by some of the, uh, the staff and the elders is, do you have time and energy for that? you know what? I don't want to stroll across the finish line of my life. I want to get to the finish line, and I've got to rest to be able to get to the finish line, but I want to get to the finish line of heaven and collapse out of exhaustion and have Jesus pick me up and say, welcome into my rest. Because we are running the race that is set before us. We're not taking a stroll. And we will all be held account for how we ran the race. This is the largest section of the book of Matthew. And then we come to the last section that is not one of those five, and it is the suffering, death, and resurrection of uh, Jesus. Keep those five sections in mind, because as we get to the less technical and maybe the more uh, fun parts of the book of Matthew now, those five are going to come into play Uh, here in a moment. The author of the book is Matthew, uh, the disciple of Jesus. He was a Jew by birth. He was a tax collector by employment, which which means he worked for the enemy in the mind of the Jewish people. And so he was a traitor. Jew by birth, Roman by employment, traitor to his own people as they would have understood him. And Jesus picks him, this most unlikely 
of people. There is no reason to question, even though nowhere in the book tells us that he is the author of this book. There's no reason to question that. And the reason for that is because very, very early on, the church gave attestation. In fact, close enough that, um, that there would have been probably first or secondhand knowledge of who wrote this book at the time. The, the church very, very early on attributes this book to Matthew. And so historically, we have, excuse me, we have just left that understanding that it was written by Matthew. Another reason that we wouldn't doubt this is because it's highly unlikely that anybody would have borrowed his name to write it. This is called pseudepigraphal writings. It's false name writings. There are those who, uh, who were clearly not Jesus who wrote as though they were Jesus. The same thing is true of Peter and of Paul uh, and, and others. But Matthew was not somebody whose name you would want to pick up. You know, if you're going to write a book on astrophysics and you have no qualifications, you're not going to put my name on the title because nobody cares who I am in, the term, in terms of astrophysics, right? Well, that's kind of who Matthew is. Nobody would have borrowed his name for the sake of gaining credibility. And so we can, uh, we can uh, trust that Matthew wrote this book. What is the purpose of the book of Matthew? Well, it is, as we've already seen, all of the Gospels to show us who Jesus is. But because it is this very Jewish book, Matthew gives special attention to connecting us to Old Testament characters. Listen to Mark Dever. He says, we see a glimmer of Old Testament figures in Jesus' ministry, as if those figures lived and ruled and prophesied for the purpose of helping us understand Jesus more than they lived for themselves or their own times. In Jesus, we see the fruition of the lives of these great men of the Old Testament. And I think that's exactly right. And so we see Abraham. The book is opened by giving us the genealogy of Jesus going all the way back to Abraham. In chapters 3 and 8, Jesus points to Abraham as the start of God's forming of his people. And in Matthew twenty-two thirty-two, Jesus references God's covenant with Abraham as being brought to its fulfillment in Jesus. We also get the character of Moses. And maybe this is the primary connection that, uh, that Matthew is trying to make for us. Listen as, as I as I distill the life of Jesus and Moses down, how many similarities there are. Both of them, as infants, had their lives spared while the ruler sought to kill infants their age. Both of them journeyed to and from Egypt. Both of them had a teaching ministry that began on a mountain. Jesus uh, affirms all of the commandments given to Moses, except one, uh, and that is the Sabbath, but affirms all of the Ten Commandments and then proceeds to instruct the Pharisees in the proper application of the law. Uh, Jesus was sent into the wilderness for, to wander for 40 days, whereas Moses was sent to wander for 40 years. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, both Moses and Elijah, representatives of the law and the prophets, those are the two main sections of the Old Testament, uh, the, these two men uh, appear with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, showing us, this is a picture for us, that both the law of Moses and the prophets, as represented by Elijah, are fulfilled in Christ. 
And some, I'm not convinced of this, but some people would even say that the five sections of the book of Matthew connect to the five books that Moses wrote, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I don't know that I can see that clear of a connection, but I wouldn't say it's impossible. The bottom line is this. Matthew presents Jesus to us as the new Moses, the new lawgiver. But instead of just giving the law to one nation, he gives this law to the whole world. We see a connection to David, as the term son of David is a very common name for Jesus in Matthew. And we are regularly and repeatedly pointed to the fact that Jesus is from the line of David and has the right to the throne of David. This very kingly, uh, uh, regal concept for Jesus in the book of Matthew. And then, maybe one of the most fascinating, is who Jesus compares himself to in the book of Matthew. In chapter 12, Jesus tells us that he's greater than three things. He tells us that he's greater than the temple, that he's greater than Jonah, and he's greater than Solomon. Well, the temple was where the priests who who, uh, mediated the relationship between God and his people worked. Jonah was the prophet, or a prophet, who who spoke on behalf of God, and Solomon was the king ruling for God. And what we find in Jesus, as Hebrews reminds us, is that Jesus is the fulfillment and perfect prophet, priest, and king, because he's better than everything that came before him. As, as, As our great high priest, he, he stands between us and the Father, representing God to us and us to the Father. As, as, our, as a prophet, he speaks on behalf of the Father, and as the king, he rules his people. But ultimately, what Matthew wants us to understand is that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Messiah. The, the Greek word for Messiah is Christ, or Christos, that he is the one who came to save. And we see this in several places. In chapter 11, John the Baptist is imprisoned, and he sends one of his disciples to Jesus to ask if, uh, if, if he's the Christ. Now, there are some, if you have watched even the videos I recommend, the, the Gospel Project, or the Bible Project, rather, uh, you, would, you would hear Tim Mackey, the guy's voice you hear there, kind of criticize John the Baptist, that this is a moment of doubt. I don't think that's what's going on there. I don't think John the Baptist is in crisis asking if Jesus is the Christ. I think what's going on is he, John the Baptist knows the Old Testament predictions of who the Messiah is and what he would do, and he sees them being fulfilled in Jesus and then asks, are you the one or are we waiting for another? It's not because John the Baptist doubts who Jesus is, but because he sees that exactly what Jesus is, is what the Old Testament tells us the Messiah would be. And so he says, okay, go ask Jesus. You seem to line up. Are you the one or are we waiting for another? And Jesus says, go tell him what you see that the blind receive sight and the lame walk. Again, because miracles always validate the messenger. It's Jesus' way of saying, yes, I am that one. 
I am the Messiah. But Jesus had not fully revealed himself. And, and maybe more to the point, God had not fully revealed to his people who Jesus was yet. That doesn't happen in the book of Matthew until chapter 16. And so let's turn there. And we won't linger here long, but I want to give attention to this as it's really important. And I will try and move quickly. Starting in verse 13, we read, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, that's northern Israel, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, because John the Baptist had already died at that point. Others say Elijah or uh, and others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. These are all half answers. He is a prophet. That's what John the Baptist, Elijah, and Jeremiah all are. But he is, as we saw in chapter, uh, I think I said 13, um, much more than that. He is not only prophet, he is priest and king. So then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ... Here's the key, and it's easy to miss because we use these terms so much, the Son of the living God. This is the rub in the book of Matthew. Let me draw that out for you if I can. Verse 17, and Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, that is Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. He didn't figure it out on his own. This is the point at which the Father is fully revealing to us who Jesus is. John the Baptist didn't have this privilege. But my Father who is in heaven, that's who revealed it to you. And I tell you, there's a word play here. You are Peter, it's a word for pebble. And on this rock, that's a word for like a cliff. Jesus is not calling Peter the rock of the church He's calling Peter's confession the rock of the church. How is the church built? It's not built on Peter. It's built on the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You want to join the church? You have to say that. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, or better, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. They didn't get it well enough yet to represent him. But here's the thing. Peter calls him the Christ, the Messiah. The one who would come to set his people free. But then he says, the son of the living God. He doesn't say you are the Christ, the son of David. That would be very fitting for the book of Matthew. He doesn't say you are the Christ, the son of man. That would also be very fitting for the book of Matthew. He says you are the Christ, the son of the living God. In chapter 22, Jesus confronts the Pharisees by quoting for them Psalm 110. They're trying to reduce who Jesus is and say, you're not the son of the living God. They never freak out when he says, I'm the Messiah. But when he says he is, I am, when he says he is the son of God, they begin to panic. And so Jesus, in Psalm 110 verse 1, uh, quotes Psalm 110 verse 1 in Matthew chapter 22, which says, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh says to my Lord, 
sit at my right hand until I make your enemies uh, uh, your footstool. Now, what is that? How, how does this play into great importance here? Well, David, as he writes Psalm 110, is saying Yahweh is calling one of his descendants, or uh, David's, Lord. Now, if you're a Jewish man, none of your descendants are your Lord. None of them are your master. You rule over them. The fact that David would refer to one of his descendants as Lord means something very, very significant about who this descendant would be. And so Jesus asked them. He, he, he beats them at their own game. He says, tell me, who is the Messiah? The son of David or the son of God? And they say, well, he's the son of David. And he says, well, then why in Psalm 110, 1, does David call his son Lord? And they're flabbergasted. They're silenced. No Jewish man would call one of his descendants the Lord. There is something more going on with this descendant, this Messiah, this Christ, than a mere descendant of David. And so we, we note that here Peter calls Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then you'll notice in the book of Matthew, when Jesus is tried, the question is never, are you the Christ? The question they ask him is, are you the Christ, the Son of God? This is what they crucify him for. Not that he would become, claim to be the one who came to rescue the people, but that he would claim to be the Son of God. Because they knew it was a claim to deity. It's not just, Matthew is not just presenting Jesus to us as a man. He is presenting him to us as the God-man. Why is this so important? Psalm 49, uh, verses 7 through 9 says this. Listen carefully. Don't try and turn there. Just listen to it as I read to you. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. No man can ransom another because no man's life is valuable enough to buy sinners back before God. How then is Jesus able to save us? Psalm 49 tells us that as well. Verse 15, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. As a mere mortal, Jesus is not valuable enough to pay, <clears throat> excuse me, for our sin. If he's just a man, even a sinless man, his life is not valuable enough to ransom you. He must be the God-man. But God can't die. If we have to be ransomed from death by death, and if God is going to be the one to ransom us, in Psalm 49, verse 15, how do we solve that problem? Uh, he must also be man. As a man, 
he is able to die in our place, pay for our sins, and ransom us. But as God, he is able to make an infinitely valuable payment to redeem as many as who would believe him. And that's what the, go- the gospel of Matthew is all about. That the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection in our place and salvation by trusting him for the forgiveness of our sins is a message that is to be spread to the whole world. To the ends of the earth. John the Baptist understood that he was the Messiah, the Christ, who would come to save. The sons of Korah in Psalm 49 understood that our lives needed to be ransomed. But Matthew understood that Jesus was truly man, the son of David, and truly God, the son of God. We need redeemed if we're going to live forever and never see the pit. And Jesus is God become man to redeem us from the grave. How did he do so? By going to the cross and the grave for us. The book of Matthew exists to show us who Jesus is, that he is God, and what he came to do, that he came to redeem. If you don't know him, if you haven't trusted him, Matthew will challenge you to believe because judgment is coming. And if you do believe in him, if you have trusted him, Matthew will tell you how you should live and and, and tell you to tell others about who he is because judgment is coming. Either way, judgment is coming. And so the most important question before all of us is what will you do with the knowledge of Jesus? It's the most important thing about you. If you don't know him, get into the book of Matthew. And if you do, get out of the the, the building that we call the church and go tell somebody who Jesus is and what he has done. Because judgment is coming. Lord, we know that judgment starts with your house first because we are the people who know better. Lord, may we not be fearfully uh, going out to evangelize, but joyfully that we have the knowledge that you are the Son of Man and the Son of God, that as man you are able to die in our place and as God you make an infinitely valuable payment to redeem our lives from the pit so that we might never see death and destruction. Lord, we thank you that for us, for those of us who have trusted you, death in this life can only deliver us to you. But Lord, let us live lives that aren't aren't seeking to, uh, to just stroll slowly through life. Let us live lives that seek to, to make it across the finish line exhausted and then enter your eternal rest. That we would not hide inside the church, but that we would go out and tell others what you have done. Because judgment is coming. And we want to see your, your gospel spread and your kingdom spread for your glory and for our good. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.